Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. In a world teetering on the brink of a 1.5 degree climate change, the need for innovative, forward-thinking solutions has never been more urgent. Big questions often require big answers that are, again, often so lofty they are nigh on impossible to deliver in reality, especially when it comes to business transformation. Meet social impact pioneers, Ariel Muller, who's the Director of Futures and Strategic Initiatives, and Lee Lin Lo, who's the Senior Sustainability Strategist, both from Forum for the Future and based in Singapore. Forum for the Future is a leading international sustainability non-profit running out of offices in the UK, US, India and Singapore. Since Forum was founded in 1996, they've been working in partnership with businesses, governments and civil society to accelerate the shift towards a just and regenerative future in which both people and the planet thrive. During this conversation, we're going to reach from both questions, system level answer, through to practical business orientated solutions. So Ariel, Leland, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Katie. Oh, it's great to have you guys. So Ariel, we're going to start with you. We're going to go through a bit of the kind of the theory behind this to start with, and then we'll bring in Leland a little bit afterwards. So Ariel, I was wondering whether you could start off for us. Tell us a bit about why looking into the future will help us to create the world we want now. Uh, that's a great, great question. So I think first I want to introduce futures thinking, because sometimes we use that term and um, it's not quite, you know, we may not know what it actually means. So in its simplest definition, uh, futures thinking is noticing what we're seeing today, uh, what is observable today, whether that's signals or trends, and then beginning to imagine or anticipate what might unfold because of what we see today. So it's a it is a practice of imagination, of anticipation, and those capabilities in the context, I think, increasingly of the evidence that we're crossing over 1.5 degrees are really powerful in terms of opening up new ways of thinking, uh, imagining the future that we do want, and figuring out how we can make decisions today in order to create that future. And, and so how did you personally kind of get into this work? Because it, it feels quite, well, futuristic, <laughs> for want of a better description. Yeah, that's a good question. I am... My background is actually uh, sort of from the creative side, and but with very values driven. So have found myself in the world of sustainability and exploring ways that businesses can be solutions to our environmental and social crises. But I think that creative side, what uh, draws me to futures is it there is an element of imagination. There is an element of what might we be able to do? You know, when we're looking out at what might be possible, and I really value that creative exercise and the sense of agency that it can bring when faced with really complex challenges. 
And then there's a couple things in doing this practice at Forum that I've really come to appreciate about it. And one is it is we often do collaborative futures. So it's not just kind of it, it might be working with a small team to say, how might you as a leadership team anticipate what might happen such that you are better able to respond? But it might also be a cross-sector collaboration. And many of the challenges we face are systemic and no one company can solve them alone. So I've really appreciated the value of futures as a way for a group of stakeholders that may not always come to the table or maybe just look normally, just look across each other at the table versus collectively kind of looking together towards the future and saying, how might we um, address some of these challenges? And I think there's something about tackling some of these really hard issues that are really baked into our systems that when you use a futures process, because it's a li- you're looking a bit further out, it sort of unlocks a type of imagination again when people are working together. And so I've really appreciated appreciated um, that capacity. And then another thing I've really valued is, so Forum combines futures thinking and systems thinking. And if futures is about what might we see in the future based on what we're observing today, then systems thinking is about what are the power dynamics and structural aspects that are delivering those outcomes. And so we'll do a lot of systemic diagnosis in our futures. And what I've come to learn is if you are a futurist that hasn't done a system diagnosis of the current moment that takes into account the history that got us to this current moment, and you don't have an understanding of the kind of how power dynamics from the past are playing out today, then you almost undermine your future's capabilities. You might perpetuate some of the same injustices because you haven't done that type of analysis. So those two things um, at Forum have been real, something I've really come to admire, the kind of collaborative potential and to sort of combining it with a historical and not, you know, understanding the history as a way to understand how you might create a better future. Also, just not being afraid to ask the really big questions and I guess hold that complexity and therefore uncertainty together i mean that brain effort alone is just massive and therefore putting rigor around that process is, is so important so ariel uh, you mentioned there a few times that sort of forum for the future tell us a bit about forum the future but also the work you've specifically been looking at in terms of futures for sustainability what have you been kind of looking into and what are you finding um so forum uh, for the future is a international uh nonprofit organization. And in 2023, we launched a new strategy that is focused on, recognizes that we are in these key transitions that are underway. And how are we approaching these transitions in a way that don't, a little bit like I said earlier, how are we approaching these transitions in a way that look at the power dynamics, make sure that we're delivering just and regenerative futures. So I'll give you an example. We could scale up renewable energy, and we do need to urgently scale up renewable energy. If we scale up renewable energy still based with an extractive or exploitive mindset, then we're going to perpetuate many of the challenges that we've, you know, that kind of got us into this position in the first place. So, as an example of what our strategy is looking at, is when we rapidly begin to respond to the crisis and scale up these solutions, how are we making sure that we're looking at 
it holistically and systemically. We're looking at biodiversity. We're looking at land rights. We're looking at human rights. So it's that it's that bringing the lens of quality to the transition versus just we must change as fast as we can. We need to change in a way that is actually really transforming these systems, not just um, scaling them up as fast as we can. While I recognize that simultaneously we need to respond uh, to this demand to transform quite quickly. In terms of the future of sustainability, it really takes that idea of this moment of transition as a starting point. And it recognizes that right now we are crossing over the 1.5 degree threshold. That was one of the pieces of news in the last year is that due to El Nino effects, we are sort of, they say temporarily, it's going to, it looks as if we are now crossing over that. And it really raises the question of, you know, why is it that this inertia, why is it that we continue on the same trajectory? And why, if we think about it, we think it's most likely we might continue to do that? You know, I'm not sure how, like, be interesting to know how many of your listeners feel like, yes, you know, we're going to be able to flatten it, or, I'm, you know, it might be quite human if we maintain this trajectory. So one, it took that question and sort of said, what is it that might, you know, how do we need to think differently about how we're responding to these crises? And it uses scenarios as a way, as a kind of tool to ask those questions with business. And I can tell you more about that in detail if that's useful. And then the second part of it is recognizing that if we are crossing over 1.5 degree threshold, that now we actually need to learn how to transform through crisis. So we have two objectives, transform our systems so they're more, uh, more just and regenerative. And secondly, adapt to a changing climate where many of the things in terms of consistent weather patterns and now we'll have increased natural disasters are really going to change what the operating context for business. So it looks at those two things in this in this report because of the moment we're in. Oh my goodness. I mean, they're massive questions, but also um, to your point, Ariel, the, the challenge of understanding how we transform, as you say, kind of in a progressive way rather than just perpetuate or repeat past errors. Uh, yes is the answer when you said you want to tell us a bit more about it. I would love to know a bit more. So so what are the sort of big challenges that you're seeing? What are the changes and um, what are the trends that we should be aware of that, that you guys have been uncovering through this work that you've been doing? So I'm, I'm going to respond to that in two ways. One, what the report uh, presents is for, we call them trajectories, and essentially they're sort of pathways that if we adopt a certain type of mental model or mindset in response to our environmental and social crisis, this is most likely what will perpetuate over the next decade. And this is a decade in which the imperative transform is even stronger. It impacts, you know, those people that are in their 20s now, in 30 years, you know, 2060 is when many of these were anticipated to cross over two degrees, and it gets much more acute. And this is the decade in which that happens. So it, the trajectories, as, as, as we call them, are these four kind of future pathways that explore if we adopt a certain mindset, then how might the future unfold? And they're almost a teaching tool. They're almost a way to say, how can we use these futures trajectories as a way to have a different type of conversation? So one is fairly obvious and, and they are, sorry, they are based on what we see and the signals we see in terms of how business is responding today. So one you'll have seen, or you may have heard in the US, there's increasingly from political movements actually politicizing ESG efforts and saying that a business actually, you know, 
saying that if a business begins to compromise their ability to deliver profit, which an ESG effort can do because it, it will take away from the bottom line on the court on kind of quarterly reports, then it's actually not doing its fiduciary duty. So it's actually almost an adverse react, react response. So that trajectory is called profit supreme. There's a second trajectory, which I think is what most businesses are today, which is we call it um, shallow gestures. And it's with empathy that we call that because it's recognizing that a lot of businesses are trying very hard to respond to this challenge, but we're not quite achieving the transformation that we need. And an underlying premise in that trajectory is because we're still working with an economic model that incentivizes behaviors to prioritize profit. So ironically, it's not much different than the first trajectory. The third is a mindset that says we can get out of this through tech. Tech is like the, so the, the, I think most of your listeners would be familiar with this idea of technology as a silver bullet. And so it explores how that might lay out and what might we miss if we think tech is the solution. And then the third is about actually adopting what we propose is this just and regenerative approach that has to do with new types of business models, changing the goal of the business, changing the purpose of the business to really respond to the external context. So yes, I, I would like to now bring in uh, Leland. You've been sitting beautifully and quietly in the background and I've been super rude because um, I've been grilling Ariel on this work, but you have been working in this feature space, but at the, at the, you know, at the practical level of trying mm-hmm. to implement this understanding, this experience. Tell us what your work is like and, and what you've been up to, Leland. Yeah, so my role at Forum operating out of Southeast Asia involves working quite directly with the businesses, whether big or small, MNC or SME, that do have quite a large role to play in shifting systems and do have an influence on how we can make these transitions happen well, right? I also do work uh, with other key drivers of change, civil society, government actors, and etc. But I guess, you know, what's important from some of the trends that we are experiencing and some of the trends that undergird the four trajectories that Ariel was speaking to earlier is that a lot of these trends, for example, you know, disruption from natural disasters, drought that's, that is about to kind of ravage agricultural land and agricultural practices, huge changes in patterns in migration, and, and to a certain extent, increased trade regulations and therefore, you know, increased uh, due diligence and reporting demands. You know, so some of these trends are actually being experienced now. And I, I think a lot of my work paints a picture of how a lot of, the, a lot of these MNC businesses and even SME businesses, how they are experiencing this twin need or these perhaps on the surface contradicting needs to adapt some of these changes and at the same time, you know, have to transform uh, quite radically, right? So I guess I might want to pick up on one of the trends that I just mentioned earlier in terms of increased trade regulations we're seeing coming out of Europe and possibly the US sometime soon. For example, you know, human rights due diligence uh, requirements being put against businesses and what that means for the value chains that they have operating across the world and and their value chain partners. Well, there are deforestation due diligence regulations that are coming into play and will really shift behavior. But where I'd like to kind of ground this particular trend is is in bringing out some of 
bringing an example from some of the work that I'm doing around responsible recruitment in the value chains. So, you know, across global value chains in countries and geographies where you are manufacturing or where you are growing raw resources, raw materials, often a lot of these value chains depend on migrant labor, recruiting migrant labor who cross cross borders just to get into, you know, from, for example, from Myanmar into Malaysia to work on their plantation sectors or to work in their manufacturing sectors. And, and a lot of action for responsible recruitment right now is centered on employers, these manufacturers, your plantation, your growers, uh, disclosing risks that are posed to the migrant workers that they employ, as well as reporting on their progress and, and mitigation and remediation, right? So what we're seeing right now is that as increased reporting and compliance demands become mandatory and start affecting all these actors along the value chain. What's great is that they are prompting employers to engage with, for example, existing solutions. And that could look like, you know, creating systems for compliance, creating systems for reporting and auditing. And in the process of this, many, many employers, from what I've experienced on the ground, are gaining awareness of what it means to do responsible recruitment. But for for any MNC or any business that sits right at the top of the value chain, for example, a brand or a retailer, is, is, is an increase in reporting and compliance demands really going to shift, shift us towards safe and responsible recruitment practices? The jury is out on that, but we're starting to see a little bit of a shadow side of increased reporting de- demands in that you know, SME employers who may not have much resources to meet these reporting demands will simply focus or divert efforts to creating and maintaining these compliance systems when uh, even though they, at the back of their minds, they do from their experiences on the ground and what they have witnessed, they do know that, the, that you know, these compliance systems and some of the mitigation efforts that, that are meant to be taking, for example, employer pays principles where, they, uh, where employers have to cover most, if not all of the recruitment costs do these really do these really enable us to resolve some of the deeper problems that are experienced when we want to recruit responsibly? So that's one thing that I think, you know, deep in the value chain, what that's what they're experiencing in the face of this trend. And, and we can we notice it even now, right? The other the other thing that I wanted to bring up was that as as we see more of these trade regulations. Deep in the value chain where employers are concerned, we're starting to notice a culture of fear amongst employers um, for engaging more ambitiously on these quite really deep-rooted challenges that come with responsible recruitment. And what that means is actually that while they may be uh, working with external partners, NGOs, INGOs, consultancies to develop these compliance and reporting and auditing systems, I think there's a there's a little bit of a glass ceiling and they will not they will not go beyond that in terms of really working with these these partners to understand root causes and and to develop solutions towards these root causes. I think there's a lot of fear mainly because once you do start working with these partners in this particular way, what happens is that Every, every value chain has irresponsible recruitment right now. I don't think there's any one value chain in the world where we can say, safely say that it's completely clean and completely ethical. So 
I think they are afraid that once once you get into this kind of a working relationship with the rest of the change-making ecosystems, a lot of your dirty laundry will come to light and, and, and has to come to light, right? Um, but when that happens and, and when that kind of is made public in a certain way, that's when uh, trade regulations or, or specific you know, trade bodies start slapping sanctions on them. And that, that is hor- like a horrible risk for their business. So, so yeah, I think hopefully from that example, we can start seeing that some of, some of these trends are creating ripple effects in your value chains, if, especially if you are a brand or retailer that you may not be noticing but are happening. Well, really a comment, I guess. I mean, as you say, that fear that's holding people back and and it is people like, you know, it, it comes down to the individuals and the and, and I said I speak from personal experience having been in a number of big multinational companies and, and sort of being mandated to look after social impact. And yet actually it's so difficult to kind of hold hold that weight of responsibility with the sort of the need for the business to do business. I, I feel like when you're talking, it was a bit like my cleaning efforts, you know, I'm and the person I'd love to clean around everything, and it looks on the surface lovely and and shiny. And oh look, is my house nice and clean? And then you know you lift up you lift up the chair or the table, or pull back the bed, and you realise it's absolutely filthy, dirty underneath. But you know how much how much effort do you and energy do you really have in order to be able to properly sort things out, not just for today but potentially going forward as well? Leland, I wanted to absolutely dig further into that because you talk such sense. I can totally. I've I've experienced what you're talking about, but I, I'm left thinking. Okay, so how do we how do we challenge this? How do we get brave? How do we work better with the system level, all the change agents we need to to properly address this? So that and and this being lots of different issues, obviously, so that we don't keep just perpetuating the norm and just as as I say, just kind of clean round all the surfaces so it looks shiny on the outside, but probably is filthy dirty underneath. Yeah. There's something that you said earlier on about cleaning on the surface and how much effort it actually takes to deep clean, right? And so I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, whenever businesses take action or whenever, you know, consultancies or, or, or civil society works with business to take action, I think a need that we're starting to see is actually to be able to multi-solve with with the kinds of innovations that you're coming up with or the kinds of interventions that you're putting into the system, right? And I think, you know, the, the benefit of multi-solving, and when I say multi-solving, it means, you know, you do have to address some of the immediate risks with your interventions right now. But obviously, there are these long-term risks in terms of, you know, how drought and how migration are going to fundamentally change how your value chains are, for example governed, how they are structured, how they are organized. I think, you know, I think what it means is that businesses do have to be aware and balance these two risks whenever they go into that innovation space or that that critical action space so that they can be quite efficient (laughs) uh, with the kind of resources and investments that they are putting in. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if Ariel also had any other insight on this because I could go on in terms of bringing more concrete examples of how we are working with business to to go beyond um, just surface cleaning um, and to have that courage to actually you know face down radical the radical transformation that we have to make but um, I really like to hear from Ariel in terms of what we're seeing uh, businesses have to do. Thank you Leland. I think it's, it's like that first rule of fight club. <laughs> But um, 
I think the first thing we have to do is actually be more honest and name these kind of really tough issues. Like, you know, that we do have to do the deep cleaning, deep cleaning or look at the root causes. So one way to do that is, is if you're an individual business, it's much harder. How do you do that as a collective of businesses so that no one business is holding that challenge? I think having some humility of how long it's going to take for these changes to happen, but recognizing that by naming it more honestly and perhaps collectively, you're starting the conversation that needs to start. And one of the things I really enjoyed in exploring this report is that until we change some of the power dynamics in existing, let's stick with value chains or supply chains. So if you analyze where is the power, who holds decision-making, who has access to that decision-making, who has agency in that decision-making, until we look at the problem through that lens, I actually, I think we're going to be really hamstrung or limited on how much we can change it. So I'm curious if we begin to look at business models that enable more agency and more access and more equity across the value chain, if that wouldn't catalyze innovation more. That's my future aspiration. And I think maybe we're beginning to see that in some startup sort of different types of distributed models where those things begin to change, where they've just sort of started with a clean slate. Thank you very much for sharing those very pragmatic, I think, approaches, which is really important because actually, as we set out, you know, they're huge questions that you guys have been asking and holding that complexity, but actually to then boil it down to, okay, so how do we, how do we move forward from here? And as you say, you know, naming the challenge, working with others, recognizing how long it will take and, and breaking those, those steps down is, is so, so vital. Leland, I wanted to turn to, back to you. I mean, what do you see? How do you see these, this work, this trends, this insight evolving? Uh, what do you see as sort of next for you? So what I'm seeing, especially for businesses, and this is something that we will have mentioned in, some of, in, one, in the study as well, is that suddenly through the example that I brought on really, really early on, you know, of, of how uh, trade regulations and due diligence requirements actually kind of um, driving the risk of uh, uh, driving, driving a risk prevention kind of mindset <laughs> amongst businesses. And, but I think that's something that we see as a key thing to break. And certainly a lot of businesses have a, a, a role to play in that and can make that transformation internally as well. But what we do see is that, you know, there is a need to shift from a risk prevention to a more transformational mindset. For example, for when people are making decisions about value chains, knowing that a lot of the trends are going to change the shape of how, as I mentioned, value chains are going to be organized and structured. You know, especially when it comes to the labor that underpins value chains functions, a lot of people do a lot of decision makers, a lot of business leaders do have the awareness uh, and practitioners do have the awareness that these developments are going to happen, but there still, there still exists incrementalism and reporting demands. But actually, when you realize how radically a, a lot of parts of the value chain or the system have to, have to transform, I think you know, that's when actually having a transformational mindset really on really early on can help you be quite efficient with how you invest your resources for change. And let me just bring in an example of what I mean by how radically, you know, when you are noticing that 
your value chain needs radical change <laughs> or radical transformation to happen, or it's going to be quite inevitable that radical transformation is going to happen. I think I think going back to my work uh, on responsible recruitment and the scope of our the scope of our study and the scope of our action inquiries actually in Malaysia, we're starting to see that uh, the recruiting sector that services you know the value chains, the manufacturers in the value chains by facilitating cross-border recruitment, they have been asked to reform their practices uh, over the past few decades, and they have been doing so. And so, you know, a lot of them are becoming certified as ethical or responsible recruiters. But um, there is less, and and I think a, a lot of this is, you know, driven by the risk prevention kind of mindset. And there's no one actor that is driving this uh, this risk prevention mindset, but you know the system is causing this to happen. Uh, but what we're seeing is that there is obviously less pressure on, for example, recruitment agents reforming their own business models, which which is actually quite key, or something that we're noticing is quite key because you know what is coming down the line for this recruitment sector, whether they are in Malaysia or Nepal or Bangladesh or Indonesia, is that there are a few different factors and, and, and trends and developments that are coming together in a nexus that is going to put so much immense pressure on the sector. I'll just give you an example that, you know, employers that used to rely quite heavily and work quite intimately with, with recruitment agents, now what's happening is that uh, a lot of the best practice is telling these employers to, to do direct hiring. Don't go through the middleman. So. So a lot of squeezing out of the middleman is going to happen. This is warranted, right? Because at this point in time, also a lot of corruption challenges come from, come from deep within the recruitment sector. And additionally, for some reason, a lot of recruiters aren't providing the kind of value of fostering trust between employers and potential employees. You know, other things I could bring up are that AI and mechanization might mean that the composition of the migrant workforce is going to change. And therefore, you know, um, who the recruitment agents are servicing in terms of potential employees might change. All these things, I think, are pointing to the fact that the business, current business models of recruiters will no longer hold up, right? So if this level of transformation is going to happen and needs to happen down in your value chain. Actually, going back to going back to the brands or the retailers or actors, can you really afford to be holding on to that risk prevention mindset where we just go, you know, employers and recruitment agents, they just have to meet a certain set of criteria and, you know, we will guarantee safe and responsible recruitment. I think that's probably no longer the case, but I think, you know, what the what a transformational mindset that comes in really early on can help with is that when you are being anticipatory or collaboratively <laughs> anticipatory, can you start identifying as a business what parts of your ecosystem of change actors? For example, you know, if I'm a brand, I'm working with a whole host of employers, NGOs, civil society, and recruitment agents to ensure that one particular uh, recruitment corridor, a few different recruitment corridors are safe and clean. Can you identify which parts of these ecosystems of change actors might be blockers to the transition that should be happening? In the case of in the case of a brand, I would say, you know, actually you do need to start paying attention to the recruiter sector 
that services your value chains. And I think I think what's important beyond that is to for for businesses to see how they might actually play a role there, especially if you've identified blockers. Um, and going back to you know what Ariel said earlier on, if if your business model is under threat or posing a serious blocker to transitioning well, making you know transitions that enable ecological and human health, I think there is a need to start looking within the business and and figuring out how to review your business models, but against this really long term horizon. And thank you so much for taking us through that. And for anybody listening, if that has resonated with you, you want to find out more, I'll make sure that I put both the links to the work that Leland's talking about, but also potentially to in her own right, uh, so that you can and connect and find out more. We're drawing this conversation to a close. And Ariel, I wanted to turn back to you to sort of close this out. Where do you see the work that you're doing going? What's next for you? One of the things I learned from reflecting on how we're responding to this polycrisis environment and crossing into 1.5 threshold is until we really name the problem of this economic model that incentivizes profit and unlimited growth, it's going to be really hard. We're going to be quite, you know, one hand tied behind the back in terms of enabling these types of transformations. So I'd really like to use futures, which is a way that you can explore what's just a little bit past what you think might be possible and imagine how that kind of transition might begin to happen. And there are signals of people introducing different ways of thinking about sharing value, different governance models within a business. And there are signals in the niche or in the periphery of organizations that are beginning to say, we we do need a new economic model. So I'd like to use futures to amplify that narrative because <laughs> I think it's the conversation we need to be having next. Well, on that massive note, <laughs> everybody everybody listening, I, I thank you both so much, Ariel and Leland, for the, all the work that you're doing, for all that big thinking that you're doing, quite frankly, for us so that we can actually get going and, and move this forward. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Katie. Thanks. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.